Hi there, welcome to the podcast of Herbal Tales. My name is Annette Breure and I'm a Dutch storyteller. I tell about the history, symbolism and use of plants. In this podcast, I invite each time a different guest speaker who shares with us his or her stories and knowledge on plants. In this episode, I talk with Connor McMullen, storyteller and son of a farmer from Kansas, USA. He shares with us some childhood memories about growing up on the farm and the plants that he came in touch with there, and also about the history of the land of Kansas, its agricultural practices. He tells us one of the tall tales about Jack and the cornstalk. I have to say I enjoyed talking a lot with Connor and I learned a lot. I hope you will too. Enjoy. It's nice for you to join this Herbal Tales podcast as a storyteller, right? And as somebody who grew up in a quite an agricultural environment, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that those really go together, the, the stories and the agriculture. I'm You know, I'm from a farm, but I'm a really bad farmer, like the worst ever. You tried. I, I try a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I must admit, I've killed many houseplants. <laughs> oh. um, but when I do have houseplants in my house, I, I do enjoy I find that I enjoy it um, and that it feels more like a home and, and more natural. And then I, I kill them. So I'm from, from Kansas. It's very open, a lot of plains and rolling hills. And then, of course, with that comes a lot of farming. And the Great Plains, I find the name Great Plains has something poetic. Yeah, you're right that, you know, we don't have mountains or big rivers or anything in Kansas, but like the small beauties are really nice. The mm -hmm. sunsets, the walking through the grass, uh, the waving wheat really a common sight so common even that my university the chant and the kind of celebration is all based on this idea of waving wheat yeah it is a beautiful place but it's not one that's going to attract you with this beauty uh, you need to spend time there and really study it before you can find it mm -hmm. uh, so that the way my parents farm today is very different even than the way that they formed when I was growing up If we go all the way back to, to pre-colonial America, in roughly the 1400s, this meant uh, tall grass prairies, um, which are grass can be one to two meters tall or, or even taller. Um, and that's it. Uh, 80% of the, the plants are grassland. Is it also a very windy place? Yes, yes. It's, it's very windy. It's hot in the summer, cold in the winter. Um, and at the time, the Native Americans did not have any horses. Um, so they were traveling always on foot or by water. And so the Kansas natives had a very specific relationship with the land and, and how they used it. In the 1500s, uh, the Spanish introduced horses into Central and Southern America, and they very quickly made their way to the Great Plains. And by the 1600s, already the relationship with the land was changing because now The natives had access to different types of transportation, which meant that their hunting-gatherer routines were changing, and also the shape of the land was changing as they were changing their practices. 200 years later, they have been pushed off of the land by the white colonizers, and this is where my knowledge of the stories starts to come in. So the earliest stories that I find from Kansas, Kansas was 
founded as a state in 1861. And so the earliest stories that I found, the agricultural stories, come from this time. The one that really captured me is kind of the, the folktale that I don't want to say that it drew a lot of people because like when you hear the story, it will become kind of clear that it's a Kansas tall tale and we have a long tradition in rural America of telling stories that in essence are true. But as we tell them, <laughs> they're definitely not possible. Uh, but they're always told as if they were true, right? And so this story is one of these American tall tales that is always told in the first person, I was there, I saw it happen, with the understanding that people don't actually believe that. And so this story, you know, <laughs> it, it goes something like... But if you don't start it, that way it's also not right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there yeah you saw it I was, happen you know at least the most of it i was there I, I i saw it and i can definitely tell you it happened and it happened to this this friend of mine uh, or this acquaintance i know or this guy i heard of once uh, jack um and jack was one of the first homesteaders that moved out to where we live now uh, in western kansas uh, and jack's first summer on the farm he decided he was going to plant corn and so he went out one day and he did big field stretch, you know, 40 acres in front of the house. And he started in the morning, just planting corn, row after row after row, worked all day. And at the end of the day, he planted as much as he could right in front of the house. So he went, went to his wife and he and his wife had dinner and talked about, you know, it's going to be great to be a farmer and we're going to make it out here and it's going to be tough, but all right, we'll be fine. So they go to sleep. In the morning, Jack wakes up and you know, he's real proud of his, of his corn. And so he steps out onto the porch to see what's happening. And to his surprise, the corn has not only grown out of the ground overnight, um, but now it's as tall as he is. And he's, he's quite confused. And so he decides, well, I'm going to go walk over to the edge of the field and see, because he cannot see anymore across the field. I'm going to part this corn and see what it looks like. Um, so as he's walking over there, he, he thinks, it looks like actually it's getting taller. And sure enough, when he's there, uh, the corn's already taller than he is. And he's like, well, I need to climb up the stalk to see to the other side. And so he climbs up the corn stalk. And as he starts climbing, he realizes that it's growing now. Sun is up fully beating down on the field and the corn is really growing. And he realizes, oh, now I'm two, three, four meters up, five meters up. It keeps going and going. Oy. And he thinks, okay, you know, this is too high, I gotta climb down. And so he starts to climb down. But he realized pretty soon that he can't even climb as fast as the corn is growing. And it's just going up and up and up and up. And it won't stop. And his wife has now come outside and heard the commotion. And she's yelling at him, you know, what are you doing up there? And you, know, you come down this second. And he's trying to yell back that he can't. And all the while, the corn is pushing him up into the clouds. And Finally, for, for reasons unknown, the corn stops growing. But poor Jack, he's too afraid to climb down now. It's too high up and he's done made the mistake of looking down. His wife goes into the house, gets out the gun, and threatens to shoot him uh, if he doesn't come down and finish planting the rest of the corn. <laughs> <laughs> Tough wife. <laughs> and so, in that sense, Jack did come down and, and the corn did stop growing and he was able to cut it down and have the most bountiful harvest in the history of, of the land.
So this is a, a traditional Kansas folktale, uh, and it was originally told. Uh, I've seen it actually in a lot of old copies of newspapers. And it was told as a marketing story or as part of a marketing pitch to get people to move to Kansas uh, to settle the land that was stolen from the natives who were living there, uh, and to begin this process of land change. You know, in a sense, the tall tale is really—it's true and it's a lie at the same time. And I wonder how much the people who heard the stories really believed it in, in their heart. If they, when they moved out there, if they thought, "Yeah, I'm going to be really successful," obviously, no one is thinking that the corn is going to grow like that. But if that's the story you start with, uh, then you have put the overshoot window in a place that makes something like that at least possible. So I would be really curious with my time machine to go back and listen to the story in the room and kind of see how people react to it. And then Jack could have had a different fate, right? Sometimes uh, he stays up there uh, all summer, and it, one day it gets so hot that all of the corn starts popping. Uh, and he can't hold on anymore, and so he jumps off, uh, falls all the way down the corn stalk. But the bottom of his landing is cushioned by all of the popcorn that has fallen off before him. Sometimes there's a drought that comes, and he can climb down because the corn has stopped growing. And then, in the most difficult version of the tale, Jack actually sends his son, or Jack's son is standing down, and Jack, the father, has gone up. And like in my story, it becomes too scared to climb down. Uh, and in that version of the story, which is what I kind of built upon, it's not a threatened to shoot situation. It's a shooting situation in that uh, the one one version of the story I've seen says that they had to shoot the man who was at the top of the corn stalk so that he didn't starve to death because the, while the stalk had grown it takes a long time for the corn to ripen uh, and so he was up there with nothing to eat and so they said well better that we shoot him uh, than he starve to death at the top of the corn stalk in a way reflects the difficulty of the life that these people were used to. And that is, for us, harsh ending to the story. Um, I'd be interested to hear what you think also, because I know a lot of the planned stories can be difficult. Yeah, um, well, I do like it, even if it's harsh, because it <laughs> evokes uh, quite some emotion that's also interesting and helps us to realize the harshness of the situation also the well maybe what I find it interesting as well okay you can be very happy that that the corn or a plant grows well and quick but doesn't mean that it gives you what you want or the timing of the plant may be different than you would wish to I'm not uh, against um, difficult stories <laughs> yeah uh, because because I'm really interested in in this his history uh, Yeah, different situations than we are in now, and uh, yeah, the dependence of, of the plants sometimes, and not only of the plants, but um, nature in general, maybe also the weather. And yeah, weather is the most, by far, the most common character, motive, theme in Kansas folktales. Uh, so If you, especially the weather stories about extreme weather, uh, this is really common. 
growing up in Kansas compared to the weather here. Uh, and it comes back to the plants as well that I see the big difference in how the weather is nice. I live in The Hague and it's not always nice. We have a lot of storms coming in off the sea. Um, but it's not like it is in Kansas. And I think that's also reflected in the plants. Um, that the plants in the Netherlands are all a bit softer and a bit nicer to sit on. And, and I quite often tell people, you know, in the Netherlands, in Europe, I've never worried about sitting down in the grass somewhere. If you ever have a chance to go to Kansas, do not sit in the grass mm. ever because we have microscopic little like sand fleas. Uh, we call them chiggers that will cover you in bites in a matter of minutes uh, mm. and they will itch for days. <laughs> this is just like another thing on the list in Kansas that it's not like Australia where everything is going to kill you. Most, it's more like annoying. Yeah, it yeah. will just really make you want to leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it can be difficult um, to form your relationship with nature. Especially when you're really in a struggle with it sometimes, uh, as a farmer. Back to where we were in history of the land in Kansas and the agricultural practices. At one point they estimate anywhere between 60 and 80 million uh, buffalo were roaming the Great Plains. Uh, and now the number is in a few thousands and they're all in one or two national mm. parks all right and so there was a cleansing that was driven a lot by industrialization and the need for leather uh, to supply the factories with belts and equipment but the native plants the native grassland of kansas is 80 percent root structure so as these animals were like going through this is was part of the natural cycle when the buffalo left or when the buffalo were taken away, then the land was turned into a different form of agriculture, different plants yeah. uh, that don't have this root structure. And then in the 1930s, we have the Dust Bowl in Kansas. The Dust Bowl. Uh, which was in a lot of ways uh, caused by the change in the plants. So the topsoil erosion accelerated exponentially um, and there was a massive drought and since nothing would grow the soil was exposed and for years uh, there were dust storms that plagued the state uh, and plunged the entire state into extreme poverty. This was at the same time as the stock market crash. Uh, so we had this kind of doubling effect. Um, because the dust covered all the harvest and took, yeah. away, took away light maybe as well, right? Yeah. Or wasn't, yeah. Yeah, was so um, blackouts and uh, it was extremely dangerous. So there, you know, I've heard stories about, you know, people were tying ropes between the house and the out facilities or the house and the barn. Because if you were trapped in the barn, when there was a storm, you couldn't see to get back home. Mm -hmm. uh, so you needed to really follow the rope, that it was extremely dangerous and it was a very difficult time. And it was also a wake-up call that they realized that the traditional kind of European style of farming and those, these techniques and these plants were not well suited to this land. And if they wanted to continue farming, they needed to change practices. So first there were these tall grasses that apparently have roots that keep the dust in place. 
and can even resist to those hoofs of the bisons or how mm -hmm. do you pronounce it? Bisons. And then what plants did they bring that didn't keep yeah. the dust? Like so that? these are at the time mostly the grains, so corn and wheat and barley and sorghum. I'm sure you pulled up a corn stalk before and saw how little of a root there is. Yeah. Um, and wheat, especially at the time, more or less the same. That combined with the continual farming, so they were constantly churning up the land um, and not giving it time to heal like it would norm naturally happen because the bison would go migrate and then not come back for some time or even years when the grass had fully regrown. So that's something that we really focus on now is allowing the land to recover and allowing the natural grasses to grow back after we have gone through a sequence of farming. Um, so now the farming is much more science focused and really looks at not only what crops and how long we've been planting there, but also what nutrients are being put back into the soil by the plant, um, what happens to the plant after we've harvested, what's left there. Um, we leave it now, so they used to clean out the field and make it really look pretty <laughs> neat. Yeah. Um, and now we leave everything. And yeah. We try to take just the grain and leave the rest there because we know that it will protect the land. Yeah, so it's another way of working also, uh, and, and letting grass grow in between the cycles, but still the same kind of crops like corn and wheat and uh, sorghum. Yeah, this yeah. is something else that we've seen evolving as society's relationship with the plants is also changing. Now, one of the more popular crops that even when I was young is not really popular is soybeans. Mm -hmm. um, so they have really grown and become now one of the most profitable um, and best crops that we can plant um, because of the, of the demand for, yeah. for soy-based products. Yeah. Yeah. As a child, I had a very often antagonistic relationship with the plants of Kansas. Um, and as I was doing the research, I realized that most of them are not actually from Kansas. There are many of them in Kansas now. Uh, so we talked about the weather and how it's very harsh and it is not an easy place to be a plant. Uh, so a lot of the plants that do grow very well are very aggressive either to other plants, um, things like bindweed mm -hmm. uh, or thistles, but also like thistles, a lot of the plants that do survive are very rough. Uh, so they have needles and stickers and pokers and barbs and they're very sharp and very hard. And as a child growing up on a farm, your job is often to weed, to weed <laughs> these, to eliminate these, to dig them. And so I was listing all of the plants and looking at these names and they're you know, very creative and very angry names, the, the devil's claw and the sand burrs mm. and, and all of these thistles and sagebrush. And they are very spiky and, <laughs> and very tough. And I think it reflects also the, the requirements to live in this place. Yeah. The devil's claw is also like this. That, and it's not as native to Kansas, but it's another thing that like, Nothing eats it. it. It's not really usable for anything. How does it look like? The devil's claw is, is the name of the leaf. The leaf is very spiky. Oh, I will or... show you. The, the fruit itself is... is it, it, it looks exactly like it sounds. It's the devil's claw. So they have these long... They're, and they're very strong and flexible. And quite often they will 
wrap around your snap around your leg like your ankle yeah because they, they look really like springy tentacle. yeah yeah and yes. so they'll you know that's how they spread they catch and stuff mm-hmm. um, yeah so they don't want it to be eaten they, they want to catch you yeah they want to catch you <laughs> yeah um, and travel with you and are there specific smells and tastes in your childhood memories that oh yeah yeah. Well, the first one, where there would be several thousand cattle all living in one single place, and the road goes directly through the middle of it. And so you can imagine what this smells like. Every time I go back, I like smell it for about a quarter of a second, and then it's gone, right? Because I'm totally indoctrinated to it. But anytime someone new comes through it and they smell it, and they like the face, and like, ah. Uh, the farmers always say, well, this is the smell of money. You know, that's what money smells like, so you better get used to it. Plant-wise, uh, alfalfa uh, has a really strong, clear smell. And it's also very heavy if you have to move it by hand. <laughs> so so that, that brings back a lot of memories of work. And then the one that when I was in high school, and I, I still really enjoy the smell in a strange way. Do you know what silage is? So silage is pretty cool. Uh, it's an old, it's a very old farming trick where you take something like uh, sorghum uh, after you have harvested the grain. Uh, you can take the rest of the plants and chop it up into very small pieces and pack it into, they used to cut out big sections of hills, uh, cut out like a big chunk oh. out of the rock, pack it all in there and let it ferment. Oh. Um, and so it's a fermentation process uh, that gets really rich, rich smell. Once it's fermented, then you can feed it. Because the plant itself, if you to eat it raw, it's too fibery. It's not really that good. Um, but if it ferments for a while, it starts to break down some of the complex sugar into more simple sugars. It gets it's sweet the way that like sugary plants are sweet. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not for human consumption. And it has a very foul beer fermentation smell it, it's very much like okay this is a bacteria growing in here and yeah yeah getting a bit funky but i really <laughs> like the smell mm. uh, i mean from afar it just looks like dirt when you get close you're like oh there's something there but it's hard to tell what it is um and then when you come up to it at first it doesn't really smell but then you can start to catch a little bit of it and you realize that it forms a very thick crust so if you break that crust open, then you have this very moist, mm-hmm. mushy mash. Um, yeah. That then is really stinky. <laughs> <laughs> and very sticky, right? Because you got a you lot of... you ate that? Or... I mean, not a, on a farm, you get a lot of stuff in your mouth unintentionally <laughs> over the years. So I've gotten anything that's in the farm in your mouth, <laughs> one way or another, <laughs> good and bad. And yeah, I mean... Yeah, you can just taste it, just to see what it's like. You, you talked with your grandmother as well? Or, yeah. Or, yeah. What did she have to tell? Yeah, so I think that, you know, those those stories, they scroll back to to the first one, kind of, that, I, that really kind of caught my ear. Um, comes back to the time when people were coming to Kansas. There was, like, you know, no trains and no cars and no airplanes back then in the 1860s. Uh, how are you going to get somewhere? Uh, you're either going to ride a horse or, if you're really lucky, in a wagon 
Um, but more often than not, probably going to walk. Uh, and so a lot of people were walking across America. And my grandmother had said that her grandmother had told her that, you know, obviously it was a very difficult walk and they had one pair of shoes and not very comfortable. Uh, so to make the walk more comfortable, they actually um, would take some of their leaks, uh, their, their softer leaks, and put them in their shoes and use them as shoe, shoe, shoe soles. And she said actually that her uncles, who I assume had heard the story you know, because it had been from her mother, uh, her uncles had done the same thing during the First World War mm -hmm. uh, when they were serving here in Europe inside of their helmets, inside of their shoes right. uh, to use uh, plant matter, like things like leaks for padding and for warmth, just because it's another layer of insulation and you know, ergonomics was not the first thing that they thought about when they were making a steel helmet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so that was something that was really interesting. There must have been so many interesting uses of plants in, in times of need, you know? Yeah. I know about one that I read about the plantain, you know, the plantain. Mm -hmm. It has quite strong nerves, I think yeah. you call it. And uh, that in, during the World War, they were used to stitch if there was no thread. Yeah. Boy, I mean... First, I'm thinking it must be really difficult when you run out of thread. It seems to be an extreme problem. It makes sense that that, that is what they would use. Uh, like I said, it's, it's a really strong fiber. It's natural. It's going to decompose. In fact, I would be really interested to see if we could, as society, come back to this solution and find a way to make it actually sustainable and to use it. But yeah. The necessity, you know, this is the the mother of invention, right? Well, the other plant that we didn't mention and would be remiss to to talk to not talk about sunflowers, um, because this is the state plant uh, and mm. the state symbol, and actually it has a bit of an interesting history. So there was early legislation at one point where they really thought it was a weed. Uh, and that it should be eliminated because it grows really wild sunflowers to grow wild in Kansas. And they are a very strong plant and will also take over big areas of land. And then there was a rodeo, uh, of all things, uh, in Colorado, the neighboring state. Uh, and a whole bunch of people from Kansas had went to the rodeo. And they were all wearing sunflowers as badges. Um, they had brought sunflowers with them, uh, and this was kind of a symbol. That, like, like real flowers. Real flowers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And this was the symbol that they were like the farmers from Kansas. <laughs> and everyone started to to kind of comment on it and mention it. Hey, this is really beautiful. And like, where did you get that? And like, oh, this is the sunflowers. And this word of this traveled back with a statesman who was there at the rodeo. And he came back and he said, we can't like get rid of this plant we need to make it a state plant like it's really ours now and a few years later they did and now it's it's ubiquitous you can't go to 10 meters in kansas without seeing either a real sunflower or a sunflower sticker or a pin on somebody's jacket or on a hat or mm -hmm. it's everywhere it's quite a sight to see growing up in a place where they grow sunflowers it's also one of our crops uh, industrial sunflowers for oil, not for like eating, Yeah. Uh, of course. But like to see a whole field of sunflowers, you know, the size of 
really bigger than your head, each one, mm -hmm. um, to drive by in the morning and they're all looking to the east and then drive by in the afternoon and they've all turned around uh, in unison. And that's just a, even now when I think about it, like, this is fascinating. And we never think of plants like this. Uh, and yet here are all of these massive plants turning their head every day to follow the sun. And how do they all do it together? And, you know, I think it's really cool. Uh, and it was definitely a sight to see. And did you frequently visit these more the places in Kansas that are not being farmed? That are, are there nature parks or anything? Yeah, so I have been many times to the Kansas Tallgrass Prairie, the Kansas Prairie. Uh, this is, as I understand it, the world's largest prairie reserve. Most of the Tall, the native tall grass in the world uh, that still exists is there. Mm. Um, and it's quite a large nature reserve. And tall grass is like a general name for many kind of grasses, many right? Many kinds of grass, yeah. 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 And I couldn't tell you any of them um, just because no, we, we always yeah. have just kind of said, okay, this is tall grass or yeah. you know, other colloquial names for it. Yeah. And a tall grass, do you know if, if that has any uses? apart from feeding the, the animals? Um, I mean, I would say, this is pure speculation, but I would say especially pre-horse um, in Kansas, that it probably was used in a lot of kind of weaving applications because it can, especially the bigger ones, can be almost like a palm leaf. Mm -hmm. And it's very long and it's very fibery. Um, so you could probably weave it and use it for things like that very easily. Um, I also saw several of the native plants had a lot of folklore as medicinal uses. And in general with plants that at some point science kind of said, no, 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 these old stories are not true and, and we know better. And now we've kind of looked again and said, well, actually, they did know something. Indeed, this knowledge is more than about just in the lab and doing science and saying, you know, this I can prove with mathematics. It's also about being around the plants a lot and observing yeah, and touching. Experience over yeah. so many generations. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the, you know, when we look, when I look at the history of Kansas and what I know and what I don't know about it, that's for me where the gap is really, yeah, now it's a bit painful when I've like, sat and thought that I know the stories from the last three or four generations, my people uh, who came to the state, but there are centuries of knowledge and stories and life from a Kansas that no longer exists, um, not as a generation of people because they've all been killed or pushed off the land and not as land itself because we've changed it so much. So that's one of the main purposes of the tall grass prairie is to preserve that and to, to learn from it and to try to bring it back into harmony. Uh, and that's something that when I talk to a lot of farmers that they also understand that, that they know the generational mistakes that their forefathers made are very clear in their minds. And that's something that I think maybe a lot of people have a different perception about or, or don't think about, but actually these farmers do really care for the land. And they do see it as a responsibility to ensure that it's there for the next generations. 
Mm-hmm. And I think as a storyteller, then my responsibility is, is to look back uh, and try to find the old stories um, from before as well, to serve as a guide for us, because in a way we are trying to go back there to the time before everything was, was wrecked and changed. So that's kind of one of my goals for the next year uh, as a Kansan, is to really find the stories of, of the Kansas before. Uh, and to start preserving them, to start telling them, just like I told the story of the colonials, because that's part of my heritage. But as much as I am a colonialist, I'm also a Kansan, and so I also have some tie to the land that is important for me as well. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. Please have a look at Connor's website, policymythology.com to see what he is doing for storytelling projects at the moment. He is specialized in using storytelling in science and using science-driven storytelling. And also have a look at the website of herbaltales.com if you're interested in knowing more about my work. See you next time. Bye-bye.